choir for preaching with us. I told them yesterday we had choir retreat and I said there's a problem with the choir uh, anthem happening right before the sermon, which is I don't feel like I should say anything afterward. Uh, So hopefully you've already heard a sermon this morning and we're going to talk a little bit more together. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 1. We are starting uh, what's going to be four Sundays uh, looking at the Psalms. We're going to look at all 150 of them in four weeks. That's not true. The few of you who know me chuckled a little bit. We're going to do four Psalms. We're going to do Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 22, and Psalm 131. Uh, these were not chosen randomly, so hopefully this is a meaningful place for you to sit with these Psalms. I will say, uh, at the start here, that the Psalms have always occupied in both Jewish and Christian life this really central place in devotional practice. So devotional practice is like what you do, sort of your waking hours when maybe you're not already in some kind of worship service in a synagogue or in a church or in a cathedral or a chapel or something. Uh, so like all the way back to sort of St. Benedict in the third and fourth century, reading the Psalms together all through the day was part of the practice. Often uh, communities of faith will read all 150 Psalms as prayers or sing them all at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. And uh, so we're going to take four for now. We're going to start with Psalm one, but I want to start with uh, something from my childhood. I was in, we have a couple of well, we have more like a hundred random rooms in this church. Yeah. Ben, you know this is true. One of these random rooms is the children's library. Has anyone been in the children's library lately? There's a lot of really fascinating things in there, but there is a DVD in there that I haven't taken home yet, but I'm gonna, because it's a woman with a lot of puppets. But they're not the funny puppets, they're the scary puppets. <laughs> you, you may think all puppets are scary. But like the ones with the really uh, glazed faces and just the bottom of their mouth moves. Uh, and that's exactly how I want to tell me about Jesus. So I haven't watched that one yet. But it did remind me of a childhood memory of my own. Does anybody remember Salty? What? Who remembers Salty? Oh my goodness. Is this what Salty looked like? like whenever you get on Pinterest and you're like, I could make that. I'm pretty sure I could make that. But then it turns out like this. <laughs> That's salty. And he, I, I watched a video of him and he skips down the street and he invites kids to skip with him. Kids, just for a moment, do not skip with this kind of character <laughs> to wherever they're going. Um, Salty is like a word marriage of the Psalms and also being salt of the earth and light of the world. But one of the things he did for me and maybe for some of you is taught us how to sing. Taught us how to sing praise and worship songs. What hallelujah sounded like as like a five, a six, a seven, an eight year old. Which is actually pretty valuable. Even if it was in a super creepy voice. Uh... (laughs) So let Salty be the intro to our Psalm study today. I'm going to leave that up the rest of the sermon. Let's just see. Let's just see what happens. Nobody's going to listen to me. Here's what we need to do. Today is Psalm 1. You heard it read together. I'm going to ask, for those of you who find this kind of practice meaningful, see if you can memorize this psalm. It's not very long. Not right now. Like, don't try to do it right now. Unless you find what I'm about to say uninteresting. Then you're welcome to memorize 
Six verses. See if you can learn these words. Part of uh, the Psalms have always been a, a part of the prayer life of the church, but also part of the singing life of the church. And singing helps get these things into our minds and our hearts and our bodies. We talked about that at choir retreat as well. That often we sing our theology, like our deepest beliefs about the world. Uh, and so maybe you could sing a song to learn it. I know a song for how to remember the Hebrew alphabet, and it served me so well, set to the tune of Michael Jackson. Aleph, Bey, Gimel, Dalif, Vav, Zion, Het. I'll teach you later. Here's what I want to do today. I want to walk through the psalm. It's the very first psalm of 150. Just take a look at all of the imagery that's given to us. It's six verses, but it is packed full of imaginative space. And then we're going to see what this psalm might be telling us with all of these images. You ready? Let's jump in. So, in the front of your bulletin, you've got three pictures. Let's look through them real quick because the psalmist starts with a happy are those, or happy is the man who, happy are those who don't do these things. Uh, This is a really common way to begin to kind of address. In fact, Jesus begins his address, the Sermon on the Mount, with the same kind of formula. Blessed are the... And here we are with the beginning of the Psalms. Happy are those. Happy are those who don't walk along with the advice of the wicked, right? Or stand around and have a chit chat around the water cooler with certain types of people or sit with a bunch of hipsters on a wall is what this picture is telling me. No, sit in the seat of scoffers. There is already this progression. One of the things that I'm realizing is that we talk a lot about the path that we would walk with Christ that might shape us more in the image of God, become more like God's people. And and the way that that is expressed in the scriptures is like a journey, like a path, like a walking. But part of what this psalm is telling us is both roads are like that. It's not like you accidentally happen upon sort of the wrong way to posture your life. It is successive steps of comfort with places you have no business being. So it starts off with you're kind of like walking and you hear and you sort of walk and listen and share and before you know it, you're all huddled together talking and then at some point you're all kind of sitting around. This, by the way, this is exactly the way that like church dysfunction happens where you'll sort of be in the hallways and i've not heard this around here but i've been in a lot of churches folks uh and you'll sort of be in the hallways and you'll think that's that's interesting i want to follow that conversation and then all of a sudden you'll find yourself in like one of the corners of the building right and then before you know it, you're calling a house meeting to make sure that the right people in it is a process and before you know it you are in a place you did not belong The psalms were meant to be read together. They were always communal songs and prayers. We have them written down because at some point a group of people got together and said, let's have these be our songs. Let's let this be our hymn book, these 150. We'll put this one at the beginning. But for a while, these were just tunes that people carried with them and they would share them together. And part of the goal of that sharing is to come to some general agreement about the way that we're going to situate our lives in the world. So the psalmist says, at least let's have a, let's just start with saying, be careful who you get comfortable with. This is very good advice. 
Anybody in the room who's like under the age of 20, would you raise your hand? It's true, Perlman. It's true. This is really true for you. Like, you know this from being in school, right? Like, there are certain places you just don't go hang out. At my kid's school, there's a space between the gym and the middle school building, and that's where everything happens. Like, all the fights, all of the, just like kids being kids, but, you know, Judah's learned, like, that's a path I'm going to take the wide berth around it and not get stuck in that space. This is very good practical wisdom for folks who are trying to be formed in like a sturdy, godly posture. Just be careful who you are around. We could stop there and that would be good word for the day. I'm reminded that I cannot sing harmony for the life of me. We were at choir retreat yesterday and I sort of pretended I knew what I was doing and I held the book like Paul in town taught me to and I was breathing like I was supposed to and then it was time to sing and I realized there is there are four parts that we're singing here. And I just follow whatever the strongest voices I can hear, even if that voice is nowhere near the pitch. Uh, so it's good choir advice, if you are a novice at singing, to situate yourself around someone who knows what they're doing. So I was like, where is Dave Ekstrand was sort of my go-to. And I realized, oh, Dave sings way higher than I sing, which is a problem. It's true in all kinds of learning environments. Be careful who you spend your time with because they will influence you. Now, a community that is tuned to the frequency of God, we can set, we can bring into that community all kinds of people whose resonance would be discordant and somehow they might figure out a way to match pitch. That's actually kind of what we're doing in worship is setting a frequency we think is in line with God and then, and then asking if those who might not be able to hear God can match pitch. The Psalms, they teach us how to match the pitch of the divine. It's going to be really hard, though, to do that if you're around people who aren't even trying to sing, especially as you're starting out. Then... Happy are those who don't do these things, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. I love this line because it, um, okay, just like true confession time. Uh, because I've been married to Corey for so long, I remember what it was like when we dated and we still have notebooks with each other's names in it. Do you remember these? And I didn't, I would never do such a thing. That would be so very embarrassing. No, like you, if you feel something for someone, if you're having this kind of affection, you might just find yourself like writing their name or saying their name. It's, it's super fun to say this person's name. Do you remember this feeling? It's a great feeling to have. The psalmist knows what it's like to love something, to have this desire and this affection for someone. And Torah... This language for the law or the commandments is also the language for the word that God has spoken into the world. This is the most sort of direct one-to-one way that they have been moving toward God. And at some point, Torah becomes like, like a bride. And the Jewish people are trying to find a way to always have this kind of affection. Their delight. That word delight is actually a little bit racy. They're like, you know... They're, they're hormones for the Lord. Does that make sense? Yes? And all of the teenagers blush? <laughs> and they meditate on this word, on this Torah, 
day and night. The word for meditate is like the word to, to, to chew on, to take it in. It comes from the word hagah, which is the word for to mumble or to murmur. Because again, this is it's a pre-literate culture, so the Psalms are not something they would have picked up and read. It was something they would have heard. Happy are those who don't, but those who delight in the Lord and meditate on this. It's something that you would say, that you would speak, like a tune that you might hum when you can't get it out of your head. And it feels and looks a little bit like this. And then here is what these folks are like. Like trees planted by streams of water, which yield fruit in its season and their leaves don't wither. And all that they do, they prosper. This image of the tree is sort of all the way through the scriptures. It starts in Genesis with the garden full of vegetation and also these trees that represent the complexity of life. The tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And then if you keep going all the way to the end, you'll end up in Revelation. In a new city, in a new garden, and a new tree. The stream of living water. And all the nations will stream to this tree and its leaves will heal the wounds of the world. That is sort of the pitch of scripture. It happens between these trees. And then we are called to somehow be rooted and grounded. And the way to be rooted and grounded in this psalm's telling is to be obsessed with what God has given us, with Torah, with the words of God. But then there's this kind of like other side of the equation. The wicked aren't so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Do you all know what chaff is? Does anybody here have like a really strong association with wheat and farming? I realize we're in L.A. and in Pasadena. So when I was in Oklahoma for a few years, this would have been like a whole different question. Um, Just as a refresher, things like bread are made from things like wheat, not things like Trader Joe's. (laughs) And this is a little bit about what wheat would look like. And wheat has, it's like corn, it's got sort of the, the meat of the thing, the nutrients, but it's covered by this kind of husk called chaff. And apparently, to separate the two, because you don't want to eat that little covering, you got to figure out a way to get them apart. And so, uh, rather than tell you, I found a video to show you. I'm going to say as a warning, Brian, before you throw this, if you have allergy medicine with you right now, this is, you should take it. Because you're going to feel like you're having an allergy attack just from seeing this little clip. But Brian, we throw it up and there's no sound on it. Doesn't that look awful and awesome at the same time? So the chaff is blowing with the wind, right? So they throw the wheat in the air and whatever's heaviest finds its way back down into the pile that they're going to save. And whatever is light, is vapor, has less substance to it. The wind takes it and drives it away. Now in other tellings of this, and you can hear a little bit of this language in this psalm, the chaff, you've got to do something with it. And it's not good for much, but to burn up. And so often those piles of chaff would become fuel for a fire. 
There is a way to live that will root and ground you like a tree. There's another way to live that will feel like anytime you are thrown up into the wind, you will become like nothing. Just sort of disappear and dissipate. Sounds a little bit like the house built on the stone and the house built on the sand. And when the storms come, or in this telling, when the winds blow, there will not be anything sturdy left. This language of judgment, they're not going to even be able to stand in the judgment. It's the same language of the wind or the storm. When things start to press in, what will be left of us? This is the language of blessedness or holiness. Now, here is the like what seems to be the internal logic of the psalm. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. And already, at least half of you are squirming. Because you know, you know from experience that that is not always how it goes, right? Now, first of all, Scripture is in conversation with itself. And so to take this one psalm and to say, I don't buy it, God, and close the Bible, is to miss the fact that Scripture is itself a conversation, having its own internal dialogue. And the psalms speak to each other. We'll get to that in a minute. So when the psalmist says something that feels like both practical wisdom, this might be called conventional morality, we, a lot of us, some of us, me especially, would love to, to make that problematic like right away. I know why that's not true. But before that's not true, it's also kind of true, right? You know where to not go in middle school and to go to that space over and over again is to invite the kind of life that will send you in all kinds of weird directions. It will complicate friendships that are meaningful, right? It will jeopardize learning. It will cause you to have to go to detention. Those are like practical consequences of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So this is kind of true. Good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad people. But even in saying that, it feels off. Pastor Colin, there's no such thing as bad people. Um, But the psalmist says the wicked. Are we also the wicked? Sometimes. We act wicked. There is a distinction here and a, a difference that we're trying to tease out, right? How do we hold on to being on the Jesus path, but not assuming that we, because we are on the Jesus path, that we are better than, that we are able to sit in judgment. That's where this starts to get complicated, right? So Pastor Colin, when we were studying this this week, he goes, let's just take a moment and take a step back and look at where the Psalms show up in the scriptures. Because if these were things that we carried around with us in our hearts for a long time before it was ever written down, at some point, some person, a group of people decided this is the order that we will give this to the tradition, to the church, or to the Jewish faith, in this order. And where do those folks who gave us our Bible, where did they decide to set the Psalms? If you have a Bible, or if you have a phone, you can just scroll this way, right? The book right before it is the book of Job. The first thing that the scriptures decide to say after the book of Job is this psalm. And the book of Job is a book about this equation falling apart. 
Do you remember? Job is likely the oldest book in the Bible. It's the one that seems to be the furthest back in time. Because this question of why do crummy things happen to certain people and why do the wicked seem to prosper, that's the sort of tension of life in so many circumstances, is such an ancient and now kind of question. I'm doing all the right stuff and yet I'm still suffering and they are scoundrels and they live in the best part of town and seem to have ease in all that they do. Job's friends believe this deeply. You remember the story of Job? Job's a righteous man, like righteous more than anybody who's been. And he's got this great life. He's got, in the way that a great life is, he's got a lot of cattle and he's got a lot of land and he's got a lot of kids and he's got a lot of whatever you need to say, I have made it. And there's this little story that says the tempter comes down and says, the reason that Job is so righteous is because his life is so good. And then the God character says, fine, then you can tempt Job. Take away all of this, which is terrible sounding. Then... All of this stuff happens. Job finds himself in the place of like deep, deep suffering. He's so bad off. Everything around him has fallen in. He's got boils on his arms and legs so bad that he's taken broken pottery and scraping them to sort of ease the itching and the pain. It's awful. And then the book of Job turns and it moves into something like poetry, which is the language of the heart. And Job wrestles with this question. I have been righteous and yet I am suffering so God is not just. That's Job's, that's his sort of putting the stake in the ground. And Job's friends show up and they say, Job, God is just, but you are suffering. So you probably are a scoundrel and you should probably say you're sorry. And this is the conflict over and over again. At no point until the very end is it ever an option that Job is righteous that God is just, and that Job would suffer. Those feel mutually exclusive, and yet they're all happening at the same time. Now what I believe is that Psalm 1 is not about conventional morality. It's about the deeper meaning of prospering. When we were in study on Thursday... Uh, one of the folks who was there about a third of the way through, half the way through, just raised her hand and said, Psalm 1 seems, it just seems simple. And she was meaning simple in this very like lovely way. Intelligible and grounding. And after the book of Job, which is so disorienting, I mean, even the voice of God comes out of the whirlwind. To have a moment We're meditating and delighting in the law of the Lord will still ground you. Feels right. It is a simplicity after a deep complexity and struggle. So this psalm is both a psalm for those of you in middle and high school who are still trying to figure this thing out. It is also a psalm for those of us at the last stages of life who have lived through multiple cycles of complication and complexity and come back to this simple truth. That God sees us. And if we root ourselves in God, we will be able to stand. But prosper is a problematic word. Be really careful who you listen to on television speaking for God. The vast 
majority. And I don't like to do this very often, but I'm going to say this really clearly. Because there is a large tent of Christianity and spirituality, and there are all kinds of meaning can be found along this spectrum. But there is this kind of strain of belief that we would call something like the prosperity gospel that is actually not the gospel. It is half the gospel, which is that Jesus saves overlaid with what is just like pure capitalism. Uh, By the way, Jesus saves, you know, by a very large bank account and also any kind of worldly possessions you might think that you need. And so prosper becomes a really specific kind of prospering. And this is where we get into trouble with the psalm. If we assume that doing good means that we will have an easy life, we have missed what it means to be God's people. And if you're having trouble interpreting this psalm, interpret it through the life of Jesus. Who's lived the path, if anyone has lived the path, and still finds himself deeply in the struggle. So prospering has to mean something other than what the TV preachers tell us it means. The language of prospering is the language of success. Of what we intend to happen in the world happening in the world. So part of that is be careful what you intend. If it's love of enemy, like Jesus calls us to, then prospering might mean the ability to forgive our enemies. That is different than if your intention is to smite your enemy. Prospering may not find you. But the other language for prospering is this language of rushing. And it shows up in a couple of places. It is the language of God's spirit rushing in. Joseph in Egypt, when he's caught in prison, when he's caught in all of those complexities, there are these moments when God's spirit rushes in and prospers his life. But he is still in prison. But he's still in a foreign land. He is no longer at home. And yet somehow finds himself thriving. Which brings us back to that picture about the trees. You will be like a tree rooted down beside streams of water, which sounds really lovely. What I imagine is it's whatever river would have been running through Israel at the time, that's where the tree is. And it's in that place, it's beautiful, and it's always been, you just, this is where you want to spend your life. If you're going to build a vacation house, you're going to build it beside this tree. It's that kind of image. That is not what the psalmist is talking about. The streams were the aqueducts that would have been crafted into the land in Babylon. The Psalms were written across history, but when they were put together, right, when they sewed the binding on, whatever image you need to know, it was in exile. It was when nothing was working out. They put together the songbook when they didn't know if they could sing anymore, when they didn't know if they could believe anymore, when they didn't have a temple anymore. Can we even carry these songs with us? We have to hang our harps up and weep beside the rivers of Babylon. The psalmist says in Psalm 137. So in Babylon, the area is quite arid, desert-like, but there's a lot of people there at the time. And so they would cut these channels all throughout the nation, these aqueducts. And these Israelite captives exiled from their homeland, found themselves in this foreign and strange place, deeply hostile to their beliefs, to their posture in the world. And they had to figure out a way to prosper. 
So God says root down, even here. And this is why the idea of prospering, we've got to complicate it a little bit. Because these psalms, they walk with us through life. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to be accompanied by God through the valley of deep shadows. And if we assume that following the way of Jesus is the way to have an easy life, we're going to be so disappointed because we know that's just not what it's like. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually not yet the prayers that we will pray together from the psalm book. This is the way that we get ready. It's like when we meet in the lobby space at 10 o'clock and we all pray together before the service. We, we've kind of already started to worship, but we're getting ready to worship. This psalm gets us ready. Find the right posture in the world. Murmur these words. Hold on to these things. Have your heart be affected in this direction. And then you will root down no matter where you find yourself. Last thing. Next week, we're going to have a couple of books in the back, and one of them is going to be uh, Eugene Peterson's book on the Psalms, because it is beautiful. There's also an interview Eugene Peterson does with Bono of U2 that's brilliant about both of their love for the Psalms. Um, But he tells this story that I heard this week in an interview with him. He said he was going to visit a woman from his congregation. Peterson uh, spent his life as a pastor and a theologian, and uh, she, she calls and she says, like, Pastor, can you come over? I'm, I'm lonely, she says. That's kind of the crisis of the moment. I'm very lonely. And when he gets there, it's like this. Gets to her house and she says, um, my life feels like it's formless. Like nothing is holding me together. She's sewing, she's knitting, she's got sort of that embroidery hoop. She says it feels like the fabric is being held by nothing. You know what this feels like, right? Like no bones, no sinew, no muscle. Just sort of formlessness. You feel sometimes like that early bit of scripture that says the world was formless and void before God spoke and brought order and cohesion. The world was tovu vovohu. It's like this, right? She says, Pastor, I need something like this. And she holds up the embroidery hoop. I need something that gives me form, something that will hold me together. And he says, I've got just the thing for you. I'll bring it back next week. And so next week he shows up and he's brought her. Can you guess? He brought her the Psalms. And he said, just read these. Just read them. You don't have to understand them. They will teach you. But they will begin to ground you. I've been in this area for a little over a year now. And I know for a fact that much of what we see and feel around us is formless. It's lacking in muscular form and cohesion. 
I also know that each Sunday when you show up here, you are praying for a firm place to stand. And your conviction in coming to this space is that God might lead you in such a way that you can survive and thrive and prosper in a world full of storms and wind. The Psalms are going to be our gift for the next month. Your call, your charge this week is to take at least this one Psalm and to chew on it. To hum it. To let it work its way inside of you. Until you find yourself yearning to be like a tree. Go outside and look at a tree. To be well rooted. My prayer for you and my prayer for me is that we will trust this way. That we will trust that the way of God leads to sturdiness, not to easiness, but to sturdiness, so that we can handle it no matter what shows up. Next week, Psalm 23 and Psalm 22, and we'll keep walking this road together. Would you pray with me? God of the arid desert and God of the high mountain, God of the rich fields, God of the sea, and God of me and God of you, we step into the presence and awareness of the world as you have made it. We will continue to seek the path that leads to a sturdy life and not an easy life. Teach us to hear your voice in your Torah, in your Psalms, in your choir, in our neighbor, and in the silence. Teach us to hear and drown out the noise. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to